Hello, 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 and welcome once again to Corpus Cast. As ever, I'm your host, Robbie Love. I'm a linguist at Aston University, and you're listening to the Aston Originals podcast, all about corpus linguistics and what it can do for society. As you know, in each episode, I interview researchers to find out about how corpus linguistics is informing the present and shaping the future of the study of language, with applications in education, health, technology, and many others. In today's episode, we're exploring an increasingly visible concern in modern life, which is the spread of misinformation uh, or disinformation online, one type of which is so-called fake news. Efforts to combat the spread of fake news include educating the public to interpret information more critically and better regulating platforms that are conducive for the spread of disinformation. Uh, but researchers, including uh, one of my guests today, are developing methods to automatically detect fake news based on the language of the uh, reporting in and of itself, linguistic analysis. Um, and to talk about uh, their research in this area, I'll be speaking with uh, Maita Tabwada, who is Distinguished SFU Professor at Simon Fraser University and Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, Maita is a computational linguist and discourse analyst with a wide range of research interests at the intersections between theory and application across the social sciences and engineering. Uh, and today, Maita will be discussing her work in fake news. Uh, and we'll also be joined by Dr. Katerina Eiret, uh, uh, affiliated uh, as a researcher both with uh, University of Freiburg and uh, Simon Fraser University. Uh, and Katerina's work is rooted in quantitative variationist linguistics, focusing on language complexity, its variation, and its relationship to extra-linguistic pressures. Uh, now, both Katerina and uh, Maita have worked together on a project exploring the nature of the comments that readers leave on online news articles, and we'll be hearing about this research too. So to dive into the world of fake news and news discourse and online news comments, um, I'm very, very pleased uh, to, to have with us both of our guests on the show today, Maita and Katerina. Welcome both of you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here on CorpusCast. Thank you. Thank you, Robbie. And and uh, kudos to you and to the whole Aston team for getting this series going and making it so successful. It's uh, it's incredibly useful and entertaining and, uh, and informative about corpus linguistics. Thank you. Oh, well, well, thank you. And, and we, we couldn't do it without the, the generosity of um, our fantastic guests, uh, now including uh, both of you today. Um, and welcome also, uh, Katerina, it's, it's great to have you uh, here as well. Yes, thank you very much for organizing this. I'm so pleased to, to meet you. You too. And um, but you are, uh, are both uh, are people that we, we've never met before uh, face to face. And so um, it's, you know, really for me, it's, it's, it's doing Corpus Cast is a, a great opportunity to get to know uh, researchers uh, and, and hear about their, their really interesting work um, in, in a kind of personal way, but also we're, we're separated by um, distance and sort of doing it virtually. So it's, it's an interesting context. Um, I'll start and, and, and you, you know, as, as I sort of said, you, you are uh, in, in this case, both 
linguist. Sometimes when we have um, uh, two, more than more than one guest, there might be one corpus linguist who's working with someone from another discipline. Um, and so I might ask the corpus linguist the questions about uh, corpus research. But in this case, you you are both involved in 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 this and related fields, and so. Um, We'll, we'll sort of have a go at, at kind of asking both of you these things. Um, maybe, uh, Maita, we could start uh, with, with you. Um, broad question I appreciate, but what does corpus linguistics uh, mean to you? Yeah, for me, uh, corpus linguistics is, is uh, a way of looking at language as a social, or a, a social and contextual phenomenon. Um, it doesn't matter the tool, the specific, very specific theoretical framework that you have, how you think about language. Uh, what corpus linguists do is think of language as a system of communication that underlies everything that we say. And of course, to, to think of that system of communication, what we do is we look at language in context. Uh, and, um, and that allows for many interesting uh, things. We can look at... Uh, the very specific and fine-grained analyses of registers or even linguistic constructions or, or lexical items, but we can also have this expansive view of language uh, in, uh, in different people um, across time. I think one of the most interesting and the most popular contributions of corpus linguistics is uh, in historical research. So lots of... Um, it's a potential point of entry, for, but for me, it's about thinking of language as a contextual and a social phenomenon. And sort of, I suppose I, the, I'm always interested in, in at what point in one's education or career path do they, you know, end up involved with, with this sort of specific area or specific set of tools, uh, as you said. Um, was this something that you studied as, as an undergraduate or, or did the kind of computational corpus linguistics part of your, your research come a little bit later on? Yeah, uh, for me, I grew up, grew up as a scholar. I'm from Madrid uh, and um, I did my undergraduate and, and PhD uh, at the Universidad Complutense in Madrid. So that, that was a, a Halidean environment. Um, my department had a strong component of systemic functional linguistics. Um, and although SFL is not necessarily corpus-based, it is always oriented to language use uh, in context. So naturally, a lot of the research that I was reading and a lot of the uh, findings were uh, from corpus research. The computational part came later. I um, I pursued a degree in computational linguistics in the United States, and there, of course, uh, data and, and natural language data, large amounts of data, is is uh, fundamental. Um, and partly because I moved a lot, uh, and I am in a more formal linguistics department in a sort of traditional North American linguistics department, I'm quite eclectic in approach, but I've always carried that. Uh, uh, if you will, that uh, a Hallidayan um, aspect, also influenced by, by a lot of the uh, British corpus linguistics, you know, uh, uh, people like uh, Susan Hanston, uh, uh, Tony McHenry, going to Joe Sinclair. And I think what, what joins those um, traditions is uh, Firth, ultimately. 
Uh, so um, the, the the connection of SFL and corpus linguistics is through uh, uh, people like uh, uh, J.R. Firth and a lot of the linguistic uh, structuralists. And uh, so that's uh, all uh, comes together for me. Yeah, and you, you're right that 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 you know in corpus-based critical discourse analysis, particularly, you do see a lot of uh, corpus linguists drawing upon SFL frameworks as part of their, you know, uh, coding, qualitative coding of their examples, for, ex for instance. So I can see that one might lead you towards the other quite naturally, actually, because of that fit. Um, Katerina, I, I, I want to sort of ask, mm -hmm. ask really this, the same to you in terms of your... Um, your, your background and, and how you became uh, interested in, in corpus linguistics and, and quantitative linguistic research. Yeah, so um, I studied English language and literature at uh, the universities of Basel in Switzerland and the University of Freiburg in Germany. And really, I hold uh, well an BA, MA and my PhD degree from the University of Freiburg. So the University of Freiburg is, uh, well, a stronghold of um, functional usage-based and corpus-based uh, linguistics. So really early on in my studies, I got uh, in touch with uh, corpus methodologies. But uh, yeah, it was actually um, only during my master's um, studies when I started working with um, Benedict Smerchani at the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies. This is um, a, an interdisciplinary um, research institute of the University of Freiburg. And um, yeah, that's when I got really interested in um, corpus uh, linguistics and uh, in linguistics in um, general. And that's also when I decided to stay in academia, really. So um, Benedict um, actually supervised all of my theses. And um, yeah, I learned a lot about uh, corpus-based research, quantitative and statistical methods um, from him. And yeah, it was actually also um, because of him that I first got interested mm -hmm. in, um, well, one of my major research interests, which is uh, language complexity. Um, and that's also, well, the topic that I'm currently working on in a, well, sociolinguistic typological perspective. And we will get on to discussing how the two of you have worked together uh, more recently, but first, I want to, you know, focus on on this the the main issue here to begin with, which is fake news. Um, and uh, might say this is one of uh, seemingly a million different research interests of yours. When when you read through your your web pages, it's it's incredible just how many different sorts of things you've worked on throughout your career. And and we can't possibly I can't possibly kind of represent everything that that you do, but. But certainly, fake news has been uh, a relatively recent interest of yours, um, and I, I guess to start with, it might be helpful to to have a sense of what we're actually talking about here. Because, you know, when I first encountered the term fake news, it was actually from Donald Trump uh, using yeah. it as a, as almost as like the equivalent of a slur, a pejorative sort of. Uh, term that he would chuck at journalists basically whenever they tried to criticize him or say something he didn't agree with they'd accuse them of being fake news which potentially undermines the kind of more practical definition of fake news as being i guess would you say information that is verifiably not true as opposed to an opinion that someone might not agree with which is clearly not the same thing so 
when we talk about fake news in, in real terms, what what are we, what are we actually referring to? Yeah, uh, you're right that it's often used as a as a barb, and uh, it's interesting how it's become mm. part of our everyday lexicon. Uh, right? if, if you say uh, to me, "You were late," uh, I could say for this recorded, I could say, "No, that's fake news." Yeah, or, yeah. Before I could have said he's lying or, or yeah. something else. So, um, but yeah, I'll give you a bit more context uh, also of how this all comes together, at least in my mind. Um, our, our lab, the Discourse Processing Lab, we've been working for quite a few years now um, on news in general, and that includes a lot of different things. Uh, we've done research on gender rep representation in the news, how many times men and women are quoted, for instance. And um, we're also interested in uh, the use of evaluative language in news, which, which ties to a lot of my research interests in subjectivity, evaluation, sentiment analysis. Um, and that led to some of the project that, uh, that Katarina and I did together in looking at complexity and subjectivity in news stories. Um, and also on the comments posted in response to news stories, mm -hmm. which are very subjective. And that has started another strand of research on, on toxic and abusive language. But in the uh, context of fake news, what we realized is that there are news stories that are intentionally fake, as you say. It's not just a, an accusation or something you don't yeah. like. Uh, so what we're talking about technically is called misinformation and disinformation. Uh, so uh, disinformation could be just, you know, something that is not quite true, but, you know, you don't know about the intention of, of a person who said it or who wrote it. And misinformation is uh, false information with the intention to deceive. So it's a, a very sort of well-defined problem when somebody has written an article uh, with the intention to deceive. Uh, and, uh, and that's how do we define it. And the hypothesis there is that we can find in the language, in the style of that language, clues that will tell us um, that that is false, that that is not pack-based. Okay, so it's it's the the intention behind that is crucial in in sort of these distinctions that we're drawing uh, yeah. between these kinds of false <laughs> false news was uh, funnily enough was sort of the British media were trying to kind of make that a thing. I think at the same time that Trump started saying fake news, but it it very it didn't it didn't catch on uh, the the sort of British false news right. and sort of it didn't really last very long. Um, but but. But yes, it, it's. Um, I suppose that the, the, the hypothesis that you mentioned that leads me to my next question, which is um, detecting uh, fake news, intentionally, you know, uh, deceitful information um, through linguistic analysis. Um, this is something that you, you tell. Tell me more about kind of the. the it's the the assumption that going into this is like yes it, it, it you know there are demonstrable and and reliable kind of patterns that will very reliably sort of show us you know this is an intentionally deceptive text mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's not yeah so uh, a whole range of patterns um and here we're drawing on uh authorship attribution for instance 
Uh, we're uh, drawing on uh, stylometrics, what kind of style is being used here. Um, but also on the assumption that a lot of the people who do this are uh, amateurs. So they are imitating the style of reporters. Uh, and um, sort of thinking of, of that whole uh, range of ideas, then uh, we can perhaps uh, find clues. And this was a corpus-based uh, study. So we started with just data and, and, and looking at the data and, and uh, news stories that somebody else, not us, because we're not experts on you know uh, what's what's fact or not, uh, so this is fact checking websites had said this news story is is false and this news story is true, uh, fact based if you will. Um, so comparing the language in those using corpus linguistics methods and uh, natural language processing methods, um, and we did find uh, some some. Uh, uh, patterns, general patterns. I don't know if they can be reliably used, uh, but they can at least be um, used as, as uh, flags, perhaps warning no signals to an audience. Uh, so we find that uh, fake news tends to use more negative language, uh, a lot of intensification, um, uh, rhetorical questions that have no answer or where the answer is, is presupposed of, of the reader. Um, a lot of the uh, language of othering, uh, things like these people, they, right? So the us versus them distinction. And the other interesting thing is that there is a mix of formal and informal language, uh, perhaps because it's amateurs, because it's not reporters we know, and there's lots of corpus linguistics research that has shown that uh, current news language in English is very informal. It tends more to a conversational style, and this has been a historical process uh, where we go towards more informal uh, contractions are very frequently used in in uh, news stories and in mainstream media, um, and we found that uh, sometimes the the people who write thick uh, news stories don't use contra contractions uh, oh, because okay. they, I, I'm supposed to be formal. Yes. Uh, uh, so so there's some some uh, clues that, like I said, they can be used uh, as flags. So when in terms of the the practicalities of the the data that you're using in this sort of research, yeah. identifying it, gathering it, and, and also to get a sense of what we're, what we're talking about here, the reality of it. When you, you, sort of, you said that these are, these are amateurs, you know, that we're not talking about mainstream media, right? Where I <laughs> guess we can talk about bias and we can yeah. talk about heavily, in some cases, bias reporting, which is distinguished from something that's, mm -hmm. you know, you might have something that's strongly evaluated, but still true, as opposed to something that's patently just completely made up lie. Adam, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the press, funny enough, about the threats of fake news for democracy, and there's you know all sorts of accusations have been flung around in recent years about uh, you know fake news influencing national election results and things like that. Where does it come from? And maybe we'd. Maybe the point is we don't know, and that's part of the problem. But like we're talking about, I'm almost imagining just somebody sat on their their laptop somewhere, you know, just typing something. Mm -hmm. But or, or is is it more of a kind of structured kind of like underground network? What, what are we actually kind of dealing with here? If it, if it's just a, a bunch of individual people, maybe they are enough to cause chaos, right? But but it's the, the way that it's discussed, at least, and this is purely my own, you know curiosity about it I, 
the way it's discussed, it sounds as if it's something so much more orchestrated, I guess, something on a, on a much sort of more uh, industrial scale, right? Yeah. So there, there, there are so many components to this, right? Mm-hmm. There's, as you say, the sort of mainstream media and their own bias. Uh, and and some of that is sort of put in check a little bit because they follow journalistic standards of not 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 printing lies or printing in in, in uh, quotes, uh, printing or publishing on a website. Uh, there is propaganda that uh, is clearly written with a spin. Uh, but we're, we're you know we've we've taken a little portion of of that whole spectrum. Yeah. Uh, in part because sometimes for to do research, you, you have to say, I'm going to take this little slice and work on it. Yeah. And the, the slice that we're working on is uh, people who, you know, sit down and, and, and write something that is uh, completely untrue. Uh, and within that uh, uh, slice of, of the uh, fake news pie, there's lots of different people. There are well-known uh, cases, uh, especially in sort of the, the late 2010, 2018, 16, 17, um, cases of teenagers who figured out that if they wrote stories about politics, they could place a lot of ads on them um, because they would generate a lot of clicks and therefore a lot of revenue. Uh, So this is kind of the amateur uh, fake news creator. Then we went on to conspiracy theories uh, and uh, people who create conspiracy theories either because it benefits them or because they they actually believe in, in some of those things. Um, so it's it's just really hard uh, as a linguist to get at the at the source of the of the fake news problem. It is um, you know it's got many facets. Uh, the reason we are talking about it so much is not because uh, there is a lot more individual fake news stories. It's because they they circulate so easily. Really? The, you know, creating false information is not a new phenomenon. What's new is um, how easy it is to distribute it in social media channels. And there, there are lots of studies that you know a handful of rumors can reach millions of people uh, very easily. Uh, so that's why it's sort of a more difficult problem to solve, and that's why a lot of the efforts are at detecting at the source. Uh, yeah. So. The, the time that first story is published or that first tweet that contains a headline is published, uh, stopping it there before it reaches uh, millions of people. So what would you say is the kind of current kind of state of the art in, in that endeavor of, you know, trying to to automatically detect it at source, as, as you said? Um, what's What's the kind of situation now in terms of how how reliably, you know, it's it's possible to take an individual text yeah. and and you know, what do we come out with a score like a likelihood of this is yeah. you know more or less like is that is that kind of how 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 it works? Yeah, a lot of the effort is saying uh, you know this just got posted. Uh, it, it's it's likely um, you know fake, uh, right. and then there's. This also depends on uh, terms of service and regulations and regulatory frameworks under which whoever the hosting company uh, uh, operates. Uh, but you can also take different approaches. You know, there's also, of course, the danger of censorship. 
uh, of silencing uh, somebody who's you know got an opinion, and opinions are absolutely valid. Uh, so some of the approaches include slowing down content that seems to be uh, becoming viral very fast, uh, and that's not necessarily censoring, but just slowing down until you know yeah, we, right. we got a chance to check it. Um, <laughs> the situation has changed dramatically in the last few months because there's a lot of fragmentation in social media now. Uh, uh, for instance, a lot of the, uh, this is often called safety and integrity teams uh, in, in social media companies. Uh, so the team at Twitter that yeah used to do this has been, I think, uh, disintegrated. Uh, the, yeah. Everybody left or, or has been laid off. Um, and then there's a lot of movement in that space uh, with uh, Meta producing a new kind of Twitter kind of uh, um, yeah, threats. Threads, exactly. Interesting, interesting name. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's so many interesting metaphors there as well about how we 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 thread ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, metaphors, yeah. but it's it's just a uh, a, a huge problem uh, with many uh, prongs, and that I think needs a lot of research and a lot of scholars to to pay attention, social uh, science scholars, um, uh, journalism, uh, well, media studies. Um, it, you know, we're all, you know, working on little pieces of it. Uh, I think, and, and then you said uh, the danger, I think the danger is the loss of trust in, in institutions and in, in sources of information. That is uh, the real danger to, to uh, democracy and public participation, that we just, don't trust what we read anymore or we don't trust what people yeah trust. we're, we're going to in a moment move on to talk about how people respond to, to news articles not not necessarily fake news articles but more, more broadly the, the the work we mentioned at the beginning uh with you and and katarina but i do want to ask you before we move on to that um it's as an yeah. as an academic, you know you're publishing research and and you you're sharing with the academic community and beyond. You know the the findings of your work and the yeah. methods you're developing and tools and corpus yeah. data. We're about to talk about a, a corpus that you uh, recently compiled and published on on the uh, opinion and news comments uh, that sort of data. Um, yeah. How how do you do, do you perceive a risk of of almost mm -hmm inadvertently publishing like recipe book of here's yeah. how to write really good fake tweets that are hard, fake news articles that are really hard to detect because here's conversely a list of all of the things that make it obvious right how 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 do you sort of tread the line between you know sharing your research which is obviously something we're all compelled to do as part of part of this kind of work and not sharing so much that you make the task harder by the wrong people <laughs> learning from you about how to do it better, you know? Yeah, it's a serious concern. Um, it, you know, also we try to identify abuse and, and toxicity online. Uh, so the concern is that people will just figure out ways of, of yeah. getting around our automatic detectors. Um, I, I, basically, this is an arms race. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, we find uh, indicators and then sort of the baddies uh, figure that out uh, and then they find ways of getting around it. Uh, so it is a concern. Um, but ultimately, I believe in open science and I believe yeah. in publishing uh, research uh, results. 
Um, I don't think it's uh, uh, the sort of the cost benefit of analysis of, of cost benefit analysis of withholding yeah. research no, for no, no. fear that some some baddie may find it uh, is, is is not right. I think it's more important to inform the research community uh, to have other people build on on what we do. Uh, you know, and as much as we are contributing uh, it, to solving the problem, uh, sometimes I think. Uh, you know, the, the chances that somebody who's yeah. creating fake news will read our papers are very small. So <laughs> it's better to further research and, and, and to keep talking to each other about these problems. Yes. I mean, I'm grateful if any other academic reads my papers, let alone uh, people outside of uh, academia. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. Um, we're, we're going to move on now. Katerina, I, I, thank you for, for, for patiently, um, uh, waiting and, and, and observing uh, the conversation thus far. I do want to bring yeah. you in now to to move on to the work that you have both been uh, doing together, looking at the, the comments on online news articles. Um, I suppose that, you know, the, the first question I have is really about how did, how did this collaboration come about in the first place? And yeah, um, thank you. So this was um, after my PhD that I um, and Maite uh, wanted to work on subjectivity, which is one of her areas of expertise, and on language complexity, which already was uh, one of my uh, major research interests. And we applied and received funding by the uh, prestigious Alexander von Humboldt Foundation uh, for me to come over to, um, well, the Simon Fraser University, mm -hmm. and uh, that's how we yeah, first uh, started working together. Um, yeah, and back then, uh, Maite and her um, team at the Discourse Processing Lab had um, just been compiling the um, SFU Opinion and Comments Corpus. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of uh, people, including journalists, including uh, linguists from various fields, but also other researchers, um, spoke and wrote about uh, online comments, online news comments as conversations. Uh. So uh, there was this um, assumption that online news comments are because of their, you know, turn-taking and um, dialogic nature somehow like face-to-face uh, -face uh, spoken mm -hmm. uh, conversation. And uh, we wanted um, to find out whether that was actually true. So whether they really were like face-to-face -face conversation um, or not. And would you sort of would would, would you characterize I, I i suppose online news comments to what extent are they conversations as opposed to an individual person saying one thing and then disappearing off again right is that part of the consideration as well as the actual linguistic sort of features so um our focus was really on the structural linguistic properties um, of online news comments. So um, we were interested in which type of language um, is used in these comments, yeah. how people uh, use grammatical constructions mm -hmm. and, and which ones uh, and which um, you know, features um, people basically use in online news comments. So our focus was not on inter the interactional dynamics of online news comments, but really on their lexico-grammatical no, no. um, properties. And back then, this was also largely uncharted um, territory. And uh, yeah, we were the first to use a large corpus um, to analyze um, the grammatical structure of um, so, online news 
so to what extent uh did you find you know the the speech like features as opposed to stuff that you wouldn't normally expect to to see in transcripts of speech um so what we found i don't know whether that's very surprising or not i don't believe it's really surprising we found that online news comments are not like spontaneous conversation despite this dialogic appearance um rather they are uh, to be placed clearly on uh the written um pole of the spoken uh, written continuum so they are clearly written register and uh they are um characterized by a distinct combination of um features um so which makes them their own register basically um so they are informally written but also to some extent involved um, and they are above all argumentative and evaluative and a little bit informational as well. So in spoken spontaneous conversation, you would expect or you typically find um, a lot of first and second person pronouns. You find a lot of hedges, right. um, emphatics, contractions, that deletion, all type of features that are typical of online uh, processing and spontaneous production. Yeah. And in online news comment, you do find some of these involved features, um, but not that many. So they are clearly written. I mean, people have time to edit their posts before actually, you know, hitting the enter button and posting them. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. the, 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 we're somewhere in the space between or neither speech and writing, right? Well, that's, um, yeah, actually, um, we argue in our papers and I strongly believe that, um, online communication should not be characterized as, you know, something in between, uh, or, um, we should not try to, you know, measure it up always according to how close it is to traditional spoken and written registers. Rather, I believe that we should, um, see them as their own mode uh, of communication. So and their, um, yeah, a third mode of communication in addition to a traditional spoken and written communication. And maybe if, if, if you can say more about the, the data, you mentioned before uh, the, the SFU opinion and comments what? corpus that uh, Mitre and colleagues <laughs> compiled. Um, and, you know, something that you, you see in a lot of online uh, news articles which have comment sections is not only you have the comments, but they are, Kind of ranked in a way based on users voting you know uh, up or down on whether they like or dislike or agree or disagree with the comments and you know i i'm certainly familiar with with some research that has taken that into account in interpreting the analysis if you have a, a you know a strongly right wing news uh publication then you know the comments that are getting lots of upvotes are going to probably be the ones that share those views and the ones with lots of downvotes are probably going to be the more sort of left-wing liberal people kind of saying you know that they think what they've read is a load of rubbish or whatever so you know is that sort of information also present in the data and and can that help yeah. you in sort of interpreting <laughs> especially you mentioned you know the evaluative side of, of this and, and yes i'm sure it is highly evaluative does it does it help with with this kind of research um well First, let me say a couple of words about uh, the corpus as such. So yeah. um, corporates uh, uh, can like 
roughly 44 million words in total, which is really large. And it's the largest available corpus of um, online news comments and opinion articles. Um, the corpus, uh, well, we've used the um, comments thread corpus. So um, this is the corpus that preserves um, the thread structure, the conversation-like thread structure of the online comments. Um, but we did not look at um, upwards or um, down votes. So we really worked with the text Fair. and analyzed um, these grammatical features and their um, functions, their discourse functions, um, as well as um, the situational context in which online news comments um, were produced. Um, yes, but the corpus uh, does have some um, extra annotation. Maybe Maita uh, would like to say something about that. Yeah, so in the in the spirit of open science, we, we made the corpus widely available with all the metadata, including upvotes, uh, thread structure, uh, date of posting. Uh, sometimes it's interesting how um, the first uh, comments sort of... Um, uh, set the tone for the the, well, the I mean. conversation and like you say the the, the tone uh yeah. depends on the uh you know the direction of the paper this is from from one newspaper the global mail it's it's the main um english language daily in canada um but it would be an interesting comparison with other uh papers um there's lots of other potentially interesting studies. We did a study on the civility of the comments, how constructive they are, and what are the characteristics of uh, of a good sort of want, a good mm -hmm. civil uh, comment. Uh, but there's lots of other things that can be um, studied. Uh, as as Katrina said, this work or most of the work we've done is on. Um, uh, what what are they? What is this register? We think we found a new register in the wild, a register of online news comments. They don't look like uh, any anything else using multidimensional analysis and placing them on this sort of uh, multidimensional spaces no. of registers or something else. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, I'd love it if other people uh, uh, looked at uh, yeah. the comments and did other studies. Uh, I, I know that there's some some work being done as well in toxicity. Mm. I, is, is there a pre-online equivalent, right? In terms of this, this as you define sort of a new, a new genre, a new register. You know, what what is the closest equivalent to online news comments before news was shared online? I mean, the, are we talking sort of letters to the editor kind of interactions? Yeah. I, or is that there isn't really an equivalent other than maybe people arguing in the pub about uh, what's happening okay. in the news or something? Is there anything sort of, or is this really kind of a, a relatively new thing that has facilitated a kind of discourse that simply didn't exist before? Yeah, so um, yes and no. So letters to the editor are probably the closest that, uh, you know, um, traditional communication comes yeah. to uh, online news comments. Um, but uh, online news comments, really, I mean, we've compared them to a whole range of traditional uh, spoken and written uh, registers as well of, uh, as um, to ah. online written registers. And uh, what we have found, interestingly, is that uh, compared to traditional written registers, they come um, closest to argumentative essays. So that's, they share these argumentative features with argumentative essays, mm -hmm. um, such as linking adverbs, you know, however, 
um, ways of making an argument. I uh, suggest that things like this. And uh, also to um, social letters um, because of um, their uh, subjective, you know, evaluative um, nature. Uh, then in terms of uh, written online registers, they are uh, or come closest to reviews and opinion blogs on the one hand, but on the other hand to research articles. And this really um, nicely illustrates how online news comments uh, combine these evaluative involved features with informational argumentative features. And yeah, honestly, we haven't found anything that is like really, really close to online news comments. So they really have their own um, way of using language. That's really interesting and, and maybe um, helps anecdotally explain some t very, uh, Occasionally, over the last few years, bits of research that I've been involved with have been reported in the news. And, you know, I've made the mistake of, of reading the online comments on those articles. And they're saying, you know, who is this Dr. Love guy? Who does he think he is telling us how language is changing or whatever? And, and you know, it did feel like this is so unusually personal in in the sense of strangers kind of having this platform to talk about you who you've never even met you know and and well well you'll never meet never, mostly in many ways anonymous in many cases as well you know and and you're right that there is something unique about it which is which is really interesting i want to ask and maybe this is something both of you have an opinion on um the the extent to which comments may be involved with going back to the issue of fake news you know I, I i've seen a few times when especially like on on facebook when you know an, an ad for something might appear um or you may end up on a website that's sort of trying to sell something from an ad like clothing or whatever and it might often i see it where they've they've kind of embedded the the sort of facebook post into the website and it shows a, a comment string and it has a box it looks like you can type in your own feedback to the seller or whatever but you read the comments and you kind of go these don't look real you know these are just it's 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 fake that the, the comments themselves are fake and that's in the case of you know somebody trying to sell something i guess but but is there a, a threat or or is it already happening that you know that that you may see as part of trying to increase the authenticity of a, of a fake article, fake comments and, and other strategies, other textual strategies kind of combining to, to try and make it more, seem more realistic. Yeah, there's this pretty common bots being deployed to post the same comment across different yeah. platforms. Uh, there's so also the phenomenon of review spam. Uh, so uh, review products, either, you know, very possibly positively yeah. or negatively, uh, depending on, you know, the, what your, your economic interest is. So, um, uh, for instance, TripAdvisor, uh, has been very concerned about this, uh, you know, hotels giving themselves very good reviews, well, uh, right. or, um, Amazon as well, uh, has a whole team dedicated to trying to find, uh, fabricated content, uh, to, you know, promote or, or, uh, downvote. Uh, content yeah it's um it, it it's uh is technically called the initiatification 
of uh, of the internet. <laughs> uh, and it's a book by Cory Doctor of that use of that term. Uh, there's just just a lot of uh, content that is, right. you know, just completely useless at best and unharmful at worst. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that online. Yeah, and would you, as we start to wrap up here, you know, the conversations that I've had recently on on other episodes as well have increasingly it seems turned to AI and you know these generative chatbot models like ChatGPT and Google Bard and things like that um, with the comments, but also of course more broadly with fake <laughs> news. Uh, are we moving away from these individual people, you know, manually authoring? Maybe they never were doing it fully manually in the first place, you know, to sort of t using the almost ironically the same technology or the same type of technology that's being used to detect it to generate it in the first place. Is that part of this kind of arms race that you that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, yeah, I see that. I've seen um, experimental linguists, uh, yeah. like psycholinguists, for instance, who use uh, online platforms uh, to to uh, get subjects. Uh, platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk. Yeah. Uh, and they are finding more and more than when they used to have authentic answers from humans, mm -hmm. and now they have generated text. So this is going to affect research as well. Oh, uh, I see. So, so you know, people get paid to, to, to yeah. participate in that sort of stuff. And, and so they're just making a quick book by pasting in any old thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's if you have like some yeah. linguistic judgments, does this, you yeah, know, very. Good. what does this pronoun refer to? Uh, it used to be very common to recruit uh, subjects online, and especially yeah. uh, during pandemic. Uh, it was a very good way to continue uh, psycholinguistic experiments. <laughs> and now, what people are finding is that these are just uh, ChatGPT generated. <laughs> I know. Wow, it's it's a ah. it's a rapidly changing landscape. I think it isn't is. It? Um, we'll 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 draw things to a close by by you know, there's some that I'm I'm really having to. Hold my tongue here. Sort of asking more and more. Really, you know, it's it's so fascinating and and so rapidly changing as well. Um, that certainly get the impression from from both of you. Um, I do have my three quick questions uh, that I ask at the end. Um, I won't ask you both to answer all three, um, just for the the sake of of, of time. But um, Katerina, if if you don't mind, I will start with my first question. Uh, for you, which is, is research in corpus linguistics living up to its potential? Well, yes, I think the method um, definitely is. Uh, but naturally, corpus linguistics has um, its limitations, um, such as it cannot provide any negative evidence. And regarding the av availability of um, corpora, which is for me the prerequisite for um, well doing corpus linguistics, my answer is mixed. Um, so there are plenty of corpora for English, but for smaller languages, uh, data is still rare. And also corpora with um, sociolinguistic information um, is sadly rarely available, um, available um, publicly. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, absolutely. You know, there's certainly um, certainly things that will will continue to develop and improve and and uh, in recent in the last episode actually we um 
we spoke with a developer of Sketch Engine, which is one of these widely used corpus tools. Uh, and they're now up to over a hundred languages that are that are represented uh, with Corpora publicly available Corpora on, on on the source. So there are there are some some movements in in the direction of you know um, increasing the sort of multilingual di diversity there. Um, Maita, if you you are happy to take my second question, um, this might be a, a a quick answer actually as well. What is your number one piece of piece of advice for students who are new to, to corpus linguistics. I'll, for you, I'll extend it to computational linguistics too. <laughs> well, do you make the answer very easy? I would say learn, learn some programming, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, yeah. Katarina works, uh, with R, I mostly use Python. It doesn't matter, but the idea is, is, mm -hmm. um, no, mm -hmm. uh, be able to understand it enough to use widely available tools. But I also do the uh, caveat of learn about language too. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's the danger of just stay, uh, staying at the tool level, uh, what the tool is able to give you, uh, without having a, a broader view of what language is and, and how people use it. Thank okay. you. Um, yes, I, that's come up uh, a few times now. Learn to code um, from day one, essentially, something I, I wish I'd taken advice on that about 10 to 15 years ago. <laughs> Would have made things a lot easier now. Um, finally, um, and I will turn back to, to Katerina uh, uh, and, and Maita, you feel free to chip in if, if you also have uh, an opinion on this too. What, what will Corpus no. Research look like in 50 years from now? Okay. Um... Well, I think overall corpus linguistics will increasingly draw on data from the web and uh, working with a very big, large data um, harvested from the web uh, will become um, the standard rather than the exception. That's what I think. Also, I think that uh, as we are working increasingly with language um, from the web, the data will become more multimodal. So on top of text, it will include video and um, images as well. Maita, do you have anything else you'd, you'd add to that or would you have a similar uh, a similar perspective? Yeah, yeah, lots of potential directions. I, um, I think one uh, positive thing of the advent of generative AI is that uh, it has made corpus linguistics very popular. Uh, people Brilliant. are learning about it. You know, you cannot go to an AI or NLP conference these days without hearing first quoted uh, at least once, you know, that you shall know a word by the company it keeps. Yes. Um, well, I look forward to seeing uh, how all these uh, fields uh, uh, cross-pollinate. Uh, um, indeed, yes, yes. And, and you know, on, on that note, we will uh, draw things to to a close. And I'm, as I said, really stopping yeah. myself from, from asking more uh, to both of you because this is so fascinating. But Thanks both of you for 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 coming on. It's it's been really great to 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 be able to have a chat with you. And and of course, thanks to you, our listeners and viewers. However, you're uh, you're consuming uh, Corpus Cast for tuning into this episode. Uh, in the next episode, uh, I'll be speaking to uh, a colleague of uh, Maite's who now works at the University of Birmingham, Professor Jack Reed, about computational sociolinguistics. Um, in the meantime, do let us know your thoughts about CorpusCast using the hashtag CorpusCast uh, and make sure to check out the Aston Corpus Linguistics Research Group on Twitter at Aston Corpus and you can find me at Lovermob. 
Uh, Corpus Cast is an Aston Originals podcast hosted by me, Robbie Love, and produced by Sam Cook. Um, and with all of that said, uh, thank you again to uh, Maite and uh, Katerina for, for coming on. It's been great to speak with you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs>